The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So Churchill says to King George, if I were you, sir, I think I'd put Canada in your wife's name. <laughs> Very good, Colonel Hogan. Gentlemen, a speedy end to the war. Yeah. Prost. Prost. Better luck next time. Oh, you think there will be a next time? You started the last three, why get off a losing streak? <laughs> That's very funny, Colonel Hogan. <laughs> the general was not amused, Colonel. He's not amused. I am not amused either. <laughs> you will confine yourself to non-controversial remarks, Colonel Hogan. Oh, I struck a nerve. <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, June 13, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today. As we discuss a number of subjects, it's going to be a bit of a potpourri day today, isn't it, Robert? Mm-hmm, yes, lots of things to say. And uh, at the end of the show, I want to do a little rant on London Hydro again. Everybody's talking about how much they love London Hydro. Well, i got a few reasons why you might not want to love London Hydro. And uh, just a brief thing, too, on cell phones and, and the belief that they caused cancer and all this. It's still a discussion going on today with a, quite a different twist that just came up recently on that subject. And, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about some feedback and updates on the show, and you're going to be dealing with something interesting in the second quarter as well. Yes, the architecture of oppression and the Edward Snowden whistleblowing case, which is all the front-page news today. It's, that's a big issue. I have yeah, a it is a really big issue. Something big's going to happen pretty soon south of the border. Listen, it's been a while since we've done feedback on the show, and uh, we do get regular feedback from a lot of our listeners who have become regular listeners. We hear from them all the time, mm-hmm. and we share comments with them, and usually most of the exchanges occur now on Facebook and through email, and we answer most of them pretty, you know, it's not like we have a flood of mail or anything like that. So I just wanted to say to all our regular feedback writers like Yitzi, Paul, Wayne, Mary Lou, Rob, Cheryl, Patrick, David, Bill, Ernie, Mark, Conrad, Carol, Adam, Matthew, Jim, Ben, and anyone else I left out, thank you for letting us know how much you like the show and for passing on your comments and suggestions. Were there any bad comments? Do you know, Robert, I... Like, we no, don't like your show? <laughs> you know, we're in our seventh year now doing the show, and I cannot recall a single rude or inappropriate email or comment that we've ever received. Can you remember one? No. Um, maybe I've got a memory lapse. I don't know. But um, I can't remember any bad I don't know how makes we, that, that makes me feel, though. Sometimes when you touch a nerve out there, you want to have negative feedback. I want to hear from people who don't like our show or don't like what we have to say. I'd, I'd like to hear that. Well, um, of course, we're just right, so... so <laughs> maybe that's part of the problem. I don't know. But um, maybe people are afraid to, of what we might say, then we're not going to bite their nose off or anything thing like that. We like to disagree with people once in a while. We even disagree with each other. Um, well, that reminds me, then. That, yes, we did have uh, feedback of a disagreement once well, a few years ago. Well, minor disagreements, and, mm-hmm. but not, not nothing rude, nothing like that. Oh, no, no, no nothing rude. Nothing like that. Um, just to give you uh, 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 some of the feedback we've gotten just recently from Rob and Cheryl, for example, talking about our show 291 on March 14th. 
Um, they said, brilliantly articulated gentleman, one of the best shows ever. Cheryl and I try to spread the word via her Facebook page. We will post this show and urge everyone to take an hour and listen and just think. Thank you. We've been getting a lot of thank yous from people lately. Mm-hmm. They're not the only ones. And um, that's an interesting response, isn't it? for people to say just thank you because they're getting to hear something that they don't hear elsewhere. Well, you know, Bob, that's why I'm on the show is because when you started the show, it was the only place that I could um, tune into on the dial to listen to uh, a like-minded person talking since. From well, not, the, not the usual well, political stripes. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Hey, this was an interesting comment, too. Sometimes we hear from not direct listeners, but people who get involved with the show in other ways. Here's one from Kurt at the Ayn Rand, from the Ayn Rand Center, who was, of course, involved with our show setting up uh, with Yaron Brook on May 2nd, our show 298. And he says, first, I wanted to say how impressed I was with the radio interview. You guys have produced as high level a radio show as I've heard. It's MPR-esque. Great stuff. Keep up the good work. And I had to ask you what the heck NPR NPR was. (laughs) What is that? National Public Radio. Which is a compliment. You know, it is. And I have to tell you, the final product of this show is, you know, Robert and I get a kick out of it. Sometimes it's as much a surprise to us as as to the many who made the same general remark to us when they discovered the show. And... It is, of course, as a final product, the coming together of several independent elements, not the least of which are the guests themselves on those shows where they are. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment if we have time. And, of course, we have to give part of the credit to CHRW Radio for its studios and live on-air phone system and all those little bells and whistles like our on-air operator in that other room there, Ed Von, <laughs> Von Adderkass. And like these multi-thousand dollar microphones we get to talk through over an FM broadcast frequency. Um, you know, and they provide us with our archive copies. That's uh, that's nice to have, just as uh, our service when we come in here. It's that it, it doesn't go unappreciated. Yeah. I can tell you that. And then uh, this one here is from from Yitzi. He sent us this one a little while ago. He had, which, this is one of the few where it wasn't just love the show, but had some questions in it and some suggestions. And although he says love the intro clip of your last show, remember that one that started with Star Trek? Uh, where he, which one started with Star Trek? Uh, <laughs> they all start you know, with he, Star Trek. Where he's talking? No. <laughs> he says I hope we'll succeed in its stated mission. Remember, and the mission was to bring our knowledge of I think it was. Um, social and political knowledge up to par with the knowledge that we have of science and technology. Ah, yes, right. That was it. And he says, I've thought about it before, and, and though I may have heard it before, I'm not totally sure. Was fascism only called extreme right because it wasn't complete communism during the heyday of the latter? And he writes, you've said, if the methods used to arrive at the current moral and political ideas were applied to science, it too would crumble. Are you maybe going to do a show? about times and ways in which that actually has happened before. And think about this, Robert. After the rise of a certain theologian, the state of Arab science crumbled even before the Mongols arrived. The Romanticist movement, not the artistic type, after Kant, accomplished similar things when they tried to apply his epistemology. And though my history is lacking here, I'm sure the commies (laughs) tried to apply their dialectic replacement for Aristotelian logic in all kinds of silly ways. I've even heard that current physics is undergoing something similar, though I do not yet consider myself competent enough to completely separate the jargon from interpretation in that regard. Ascribing color and flavor to things one can't see or taste just tells me there are fields in dire need for wordsmiths. 
keep up the good show. Well, thanks, you. That's a great comment. And, um, you know, I have to say, too, that that introduction that he referred to it was a significant one in one way because it, it kind of posed a question that this, that this show is always about, really, you know, advancing that social and political knowledge. We're always about epistemology, right? And, of course, I just wanted to hit this question he asked, too, about fascism only being called extreme right because it wasn't complete communism, which was an interesting comment. Now, here's my take on that. Although they are both totalitarian systems of government, the distinction between fascism and communism was, and always is, about the status of property ownership, right? And uh, that's a subject I'll be, be dealing with on a local level later in the today's show. Communists favor ownership, ownership and control of the means of production, while fascists are content to leave ownership in private hands, but definitely have the control in state hands. So I guess in that sense, I suppose saying that fascism isn't complete communism is kind of right on the mark. It just didn't go that extra step by taking over the property, too, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but rather than demonstrate a right-left split between the two, I think this way of looking at fascism really demonstrates that it is indeed on the left of the spectrum, right beside the communists. It's, it's sitting right there beside them. So... That's just a sample of some of the type of uh, feedback we've been getting lately. Now, we've got some other updates today. These ones mostly having to do with the show itself. I know you uh, had some major updates to discuss regarding our website. And I've got some trivia if we have time, statistical trivia, if we have time after that when mm -hmm. you get through your bit there. Oh, this, this shouldn't take any time at all. Uh, just letting our listeners know out there that we do have a website, of course, where all of our shows are archived. Going right back to the very first show in 2007, wasn't it, Bob? Yep. And uh, on that website, I, I do the, the web uh, mastering, you could call it there. Uh, we've put up a link for our show to be available in iTunes, so you can find that right on our website if you want to listen on your cell phone or on your iTunes. Um, we've added a new feature to all of um, the, the recent shows where we put a link called Bonus Material. And it's usually um, our sources for our clips. A lot of people, uh, <laughs> me especially, <laughs> love our clips. And a lot of time and effort is put into creating the clips, um, the audio bites that we have at the top, bottom, and at the three quarters of the hour. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you also find extra links on those pages where we haven't. And we'll yeah. always add stuff to them later on. Don't assume just because you went to a particular show on a particular day and you go back later that it's right. that page is going to be the same. That page might be the one that changes. Right. Like a couple yeah. of shows ago, I put in some suggested reading because I talked about some books. Um, that's the show I did solo a couple of weeks ago. And I talked about some books. I put the books in that link. So have a look at that. And also the credits are there as well are on their operators and the hosts of the show. We've also updated the host page. And um, we've added Paul Lambert, who is our Euro correspondent, as a, um, as a uh, regular guest host of Just Right, and Paul McKeever, who has also uh, been a guest host on our show. And we're going to add two more. Of course, um, Mary Lou Ambrosio and uh, Kathy Shadle, mm -hmm. who've also guest hosted Just Right. So it's not a show specifically hosted by Bob and myself. We do have occasional well, 98 guest of the hosts. Time. <laughs> yeah, quite often it is, yeah. but um, we have to give credit where it's due. 
Also, you might notice that we've changed our categories. It was very philosophic before, you know, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, aesthetics. That was rather dry, I found. <laughs> so we broke it all down into more popular, um, understandable uh, topics like science, technology, entertainment, those kinds of things. Mm. So you'll see those changes there as well. If you click on those categories, all the shows which dealt with those topics come up, and um, you can go and have a, a listen to those. Now, of course, always we're um, posting things to YouTube. Uh, the most latest one was our um, interview and... Not our interview, sorry, but our, my interview with um, Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute and uh, his speech that he gave on uh, May 6th in Toronto uh, on the morality of capitalism. And that, both those videos have been seen uh, in the past three weeks since we put them up. They're over a thousand times each, which I find to be pretty darn good, That's if amazing. you ask me. You know, our YouTube addition to our site is, of course, pretty much your project, isn't it, Robert? Like, uh, I do all the you, YouTube stuff. Yeah, that, that, you can have that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning quite a bit. Yeah. Just bought a green screen. So we'll be doing some more stuff with green screen uh, um, in the future. Yeah, Probably slowly some the quality's been getting better, and we've been learning. Yeah. From, and it's just amazing how professional it's starting to look, Robert. We it's have 189 subscribers on YouTube, and I encourage people to go out there and subscribe to us. And uh, our videos have been seen... Over 43,000 times, and that's pretty darn good if you ask me. Wow. The most um, uh, popular one was a, a video I took of uh, Lord Christopher Monckton when he came here in, in London, uh, and he spoke about Agenda 21 of the United Nations, and that's been seen, believe it or not, over 18,000 times. I think it's time maybe to monetize these videos. <laughs> mm, I might think so. Yeah. Anyway, I Is think I'm going to... We don't really have time for the stats, Bob, so I'm okay. just going to go right into uh, my topic, which, of course, is the Edward Snowden thing, the surveillance down in the States, the NSA. And I'm going to start off with a sort of a hypothetical question. Yeah, this was all news to me, by the way. I, uh, you know, you, well, let me fill you in. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when everything changed at the end of World War II when the fascists won the war? Laws were passed regulating business and industry. Government programs were set up to take care of us from cradle to grave. Taxes began a steady and continual rise. The state began the duty of raising and indoctrinating our children into their fascist ideology of private ownership, government control. As a society, we've accepted this. We've become our enemies. We've become fascists. I'm not speaking for myself or you, Bob, but in general, we've become well, the fascists. Government, you know, yeah. The government we support. Is that what you mean? Yep. The one thing we learned, though, from World War II, just hold off on the Zyklon B and everybody, everybody will accept everything else we have to do to them. Mm -hmm. That may sound harsh, but that's true. We've adopted all of the policies of the Hitler regime, Mussolini, the whole fascist ideology we're living in, except we just don't kill, you know, uh, people uh, with Zyklon B. Now, remember when everything changed on September 11th, 2001. Laws were enacted to suspend our rights not to be arbitrarily detained without cause. Laws were passed to allow imprisonment without trial. Laws were passed to allow search and seizure of private documents without warrant. We have entrenched ourselves as a truly fascist and tyrannical state. The one thing we've learned from 9-11 is to blame everything on terror, and everybody will accept these violations of their rights and freedoms tacitly, without question. Now, perhaps the biggest story to hit the presses this week... Obviously, Bob, you haven't been reading it, but <laughs> has been the revelations of the NSA whistleblower named Edward Snowden that the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, is gathering and storing forever every single digital activity and phone activity of everyone everywhere, including Americans on American soil. 
Snowden has fled to Hong Kong and has uh, come forward as the person who released a PDF file basically confirming the previous uh, whistleblower's uh, assertions, uh, those particularly of uh, William Binney and Thomas Drake. But before I get into this a little more, I want to just let you listen, if you haven't heard it already, of Edward Snowden in his own words. You, you can't come forward against the world's most powerful intelligence agencies and uh, be completely free from risk because they're such powerful adversaries that, that no one can meaningfully oppose them. Um, if they want to get you, they'll get you in time. But at the same time, you have to make a determination about what it is that's important to you. And if living, uh, living unfreely but comfortably is something you're willing to accept, and I think many of us are, it's, it's the human nature. Uh, you can get up every day, you can go to work, you can collect your, your large paycheck for relatively little work uh, against the public interest and, and go to sleep at night after watching uh, your shows. But if you realize that that's the world that you helped create and it's going to get worse with the next generation and the next generation who extend the capabilities of this sort of architecture of oppression, uh, you realize that you might be willing to accept any risk and it doesn't matter what the outcome is so long as the public gets to make their own decisions about how that's applied. Why should people care about surveillance? Because even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded, and the, the storage capability of these systems increases every year consistently by orders of magnitude uh, to where it's getting to the point you don't have to have done anything wrong. You simply have to eventually fall under suspicion from somebody, even by a wrong call, and then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made, every friend you've ever discussed something with, and attack you on that basis to sort of derive suspicion from an innocent life and paint anyone in the context of a wrongdoer. The, the greatest fear that I have regarding um, the outcome uh, for America of these disclosures is that nothing will change. Um, people will see in the media uh, all of these disclosures. They'll know the lengths that the, the government is going to grant themselves powers unilaterally um, to create greater control over American society and global society but they, they won't be willing to take the risks necessarily to stand up and fight to change things, to force their representatives to actually take a stand in their interests. Uh, and the months ahead, the, the years ahead, it's only going to get worse until eventually there will be a time where uh, policies will change because the only thing that restricts the activities of the surveillance state are policy. Uh, even our agreements with, with other sovereign governments, we consider that to be uh, a stipulation of policy rather than a stipulation of law. And because of that, a new leader will be elected. They'll flip the switch, uh, say that um, because of the crisis 
because of the dangers that we face in the world, you know, some, some new and unpredicted threat, we need more authority. We need more power. And there will be nothing the people can do at that point to oppose it. Uh, and it'll be turnkey tyranny. Now, of course, uh, back in 2011, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court found that the NSA's surveillance under the FISA Amendments Act were unconstitutional. But nobody heard about that decision because the Department of Justice under the Obama administration ordered that decision to be kept secret. That is fascinating because what it says is that they're violating the Constitution and they don't care. So much for the American Constitution. The U.S. government has come out and said that the content of digital communications of Americans are not being read and that only the metadata of communications are being recorded. In other words, the time and place and who you called, not what you said. The question to ask is this. Is it right for the government to surveil its citizens? And if so, is there a point at which such surveillance is a violation of their expectation of privacy and, in the case of the United States, a violation of their Fourth Amendment rights? And just to refresh everybody's memory out there of the American Constitution, the Fourth Amendment reads, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, of course, the, uh, the court has decided that the NSA's surveillance is breaking that amendment to the Constitution. And since that amendment was written, such things as papers and effects has come to include emails and Facebook posts to friends, for example. The surreptitious storage of personal emails, I liken it to the post office, an agent of the government opening up personal correspondence, photocopying your letters, resealing the envelopes, and then delivering them to the addressee while acting as if the privacy of your correspondence has not been violated. In other words, doing it secretly. But we're only talking about metadata, right? Well, if we are, and uh, William Binney, who was another NSA uh, whistleblower, he worked there for almost 40 years, uh, he has said that the NSA records everything, including content, and that they're lying about that. And then we should take a look at how metadata can reveal more about you than any content actually could. Now, this is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation via zerohedge.com, and I thank my friend Gord for this link. What government officials, I'm quoting here, what government officials are trying to say is that disclosure of metadata, the details about your phone calls without the actual voice, isn't a big deal. Not something for Americans to get upset about if the government knows. Let's take a closer look at what they're saying. Example, they know you rang a phone sex service at 2.24 a.m. and spoke for 18 minutes, but they don't know what you talked about. Example, they know you called the suicide prevention hotline from the Golden Gate Bridge, but the topic of the call remains a secret. Example, they know you spoke with an HIV testing service, then your doctor, then your health insurance company in the same hour, but they don't know what you discussed. You get the idea. Yeah, Metadata. Or, or worse, yeah. yeah. They, they notice you made a phone call to Rob Ford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can see how it easy it is to fill in the blanks, and all they have to do is basically come to you and say, uh, tell you what, you don't do this activity, or you do this for us, or we'll release this data to the press. 
you know? Uh, in other words, blackmail. It's very easy to do. For, for example, it's been suggested by uh, LibertyCaucus.net that Chief Justice John Roberts of the U.S. Supreme Court was blackmailed by the Obama administration into supporting Obamacare on threat of releasing information suggesting illegality in the adoption of his two children. These suggested allegations have not been proven, but you can see how information, no matter how small, can be used to affect enormous change if such information is held on powerful individuals by the state. The recent revelation that the Internal Revenue Service in the United States was unfairly targeting Tea Party and conservative organizations with excessive audits highlights the extent to which the left will go to harass their critics. The collection and availability of metadata and social network data to the government can only benefit such immoral and illegal activity. This is from New York Magazine via ZeroHedge.com. Quote, when you take all those records of who's communicating with you, you can build social networks and communities for everyone in the world. Mathematician and NSA whistleblower William Binney says, one of the best analysts in history who left the agency in 2001 amid privacy concerns told da Daily Intelligencer, and when you marry it up with content, which he is convinced the NSA is collecting as well, you have leverage against everybody in the country. You are unique in the world, Binney explained, based on the identifying attributes of the machines you use. If I want to know who's in the Tea Party, I can put together the metadata and see who's communicating with whom. I can construct the network of the Tea Party. If I want to pass that data to the IRS, then I can do that. That's the danger here. And this is from the ACLU via, again, ZeroHedge.com. Quote, a Massachusetts Institute of Technology study a few years back found that reviewing people's social networking contacts alone was sufficient to determine their sexual orientation. Consider metadata from email communication was sufficient to identify the mistress of then-CIA Director David Petraeus and then drive him out of office. The who, when, and how frequently of communications are often more revealing than what is said or written says the ACLU. Calls between a reporter and a government whistleblower, for example, may reveal a relationship that can be incriminating all on its own. There's no argument that the government has a right, when justified and with a warrant, to intercept, record, and store the personal conversations and communications of anyone of interest when it comes to the security of the state. I don't deny that. That is an important tool in their toolbox to help protect our freedom. But the wholesale, unencrypted storage of all communications of anyone, including citizens of their home country. By the way, it's illegal in Canada for Canadian uh, services to record our conversations. They rely on other matter. countries. Well, sure, the U.S. has it all. Yeah, the yeah, U.S. They, they just, just buy said. it from the U.S. <laughs> and the U.S. buys it from us. Well, listen, if the U.S., if this is a big issue only because American citizens are included, then obviously Canadians are already on that list. Oh, of course. So. Of course. Everything everybody ever does is recorded by the state. And now, you, see, you say that so casually as though you expect it, and it's normal. Everybody expects it, and it is normal. It's just wrong, okay. and it's up to us to point it out. Oh, well, it's wrong in certain cases, when they do it wholesale, as I'm trying to describe here. Uh, it's a violation of privacy and an unwarranted intrusion in our personal lives. There are those who say that, I don't care, I have nothing to hide, I've done nothing wrong. But as William Binney has said, and I paraphrase here, paraphrase here, it's not for you to decide what's wrong, it's up to the central authority. That is the chilling aspect of this entire thing. People think that they're doing nothing wrong sometimes. And yet, 
There are so many laws on the books, so many things that people, while it may not be wrong in their eyes, are certainly wrong in the eyes of the government or the central authority or of the population at large. And it can be used to blackmail you, it can be used to imprison you. It's not just laws either, it's just it's social mores as well. Yes. You know, like just a story, especially if that, those things are more harmful in the political realm. Yes. Where, where a politician, cause, because certain things are just socially unacceptable, so he can't get elected. It's not, no, not, not as though he's suffering criminal consequences. That's right. It doesn't have to be wrong in a criminal sense. It mm -hmm. could be just wrong, like, for example, you're gay and you don't want anybody yeah. to know. Or you could, an individual could be ostracized from a community because of what's revealed. You yep. Know? Yep. And all that information is in the hands of the state, and they can and probably have used it. Now, if the government of the United States was a proper government and was restricted to protecting people's life, liberty, and property, then, you know, my concerns would be far less than they are right now. But America and Canada have governments which are not acting properly. The governments of both countries are fascist, as I've already described, in the strictest and broadest definitions of that term. They regulate every aspect of our lives. Every single aspect of our lives is regulated. They steal half our wealth in taxes to redistribute as they see fit. They routinely arrest individuals who are innocent. They imprison people for years for the slightest of transgressions. They have perpetrated a multi-billion dollar so-called war on drugs, which has incarcerated and ruined the lives of millions of peaceful people. They've spent untold billions on so-called war on terror, which by definition is a never-ending war. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Oh, today we're announcing that there's no more terror. Ain't gonna happen. Doesn't that sound absolutely ludicrous? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in other words, there will always, always, always be a war on terror. Therefore, these measures will never go away based on that criteria. In a short number of years, they've squandered a legacy of freedom and turned prosperity into poverty and happiness into hopelessness. We're living on the cusp of a tyrannical age, Bob. Where law enforcement and government surveillance tactics, which may have been acceptable if the government was restricted to protecting our rights, have become the tools of a tyrannical regime of fascists. And if we don't put a stop to these incursions on our freedom, we'll only have ourselves to blame. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here when I say these things. I think that these are the facts. You only have to put them together. Connect the dots, as Sulaiman likes to say. Yes, connect yeah. the dots, put them together, encapsulate it, and talk about it as for what it really is. We're living in a tyranny, fascist state, and these kinds of um, intrusions. If in the hands of a proper government, like I said, not too much of a concern, because they will be properly dealt with in the court of law. But the courts are just as corrupt as the administration, which is just as corrupt as the NSA, just as corrupt as the police, and so on down the line to the people who put them there, in other words, you and I. Well, if you're in the business of redistributing wealth, it's kind of difficult to be an uncorrupt thief. <laughs> How can you, you know, people do, exactly. people, people totally disconnect that goal from all of the other things that are happening in government. Yep. They don't see the direct connection, that you can't be an honest thief. You can't vote for an honest politician who's saying he's going to be giving you something for nothing. That's a lie from from the start. By definition, By it's definition, a lie. By definition, yes. it's a lie. It can't cannot happen, right? You can you can join in on the pyramid scheme and maybe you know come out on top, but that's about as far as that goes. Uh, so is, was that it for, for your part there, Robert? Yeah, let's go to the bottom of the hour now. We have okay. a couple of clips here. When we return, I'll be talking a little bit about this uh, whole deal with uh, cell phones and cancer, just very briefly, but the big issues that I'll be talking about is uh, the London Hydro issue. Okay, after we return. Major Hauser, may I inquire what your mission is? It is top secret, sir. 
And uh, before telling you, I want your assurance of absolute security. You have it, sir? This very office is more secure than any room in the headquarters of the Führer himself. So I can assure you, Major Hauser, you may speak with absolute security. Your secret will not go beyond these walls. Colonel? <laughs> Turn the volume up, can't you? I can. Somebody's been using this thing to make coffee. Don't you guys know a coffee pot from an amplifier? Equipment <laughs> you referred to, Colonel, is a new type V-bomb. Fully armed with a highly volatile explosive. I have been ordered to bring it to the coast. Obviously for use in targets against England. That's fantastic. Fantastic, Major. <laughs> you sure this is a one-way tap? <laughs> See the fellow in the Mercedes? His name is Fielding Chase. He's got a radio show. Maybe you heard it. No, I don't think I have. No. He was on the phone talking with the victim when the guy got shot. No kidding. Yes, sir. You mean on that phone that he's got there? No, sir. He was at his house in Malibu. Oh. You know, I'm thinking of getting me one of them. What's that? One of those, uh, what you call it, phones like he got, um... Cellular. Uh, cellular. Sell your phone. What do you think they cost? Jeez, I don't know. You know, there's talk. Oh, I don't believe it. That you can get cancer from using them? You believe that? Cancer? No. No, I don't. I'm going to check with my cousin, uh, Dominic, because uh, wherever he goes, he got one of those things stuck in his ear. And I don't see no tumor growing under his brain. <laughs> yeah, at the beach and in his car. I would have stopped for a whole day long. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> he says the phone made him a lot of money. Have you got a stockbroker, Lieutenant? Who, me? No, I'm lucky I got a savings account. No, I'm thinking of calling my wife. Yeah. Hello, it's me. Guess where I'm calling from? Wrong. The car. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant, Mr. Chase, he's real anxious to talk to you. Yeah, just let me look around here a minute. Well, Lieutenant, what can I do for you? Uh, how do you like that thing, sir? What? The phone? I'm thinking of buying one. Indispensable. Really? Uh, have you heard, you know, there's people that are saying that you can get cancer from those things, the radiation in your ear. Ridiculous. It is, huh? It's just that, uh, my wife saw this guy on television. He said he grew a tumor. One is liable to hear almost anything on television these days, Lieutenant. None of it necessarily true. So you don't worry about it. There's nothing to worry about. Can we get down to business? <laughs> Can we get down to business? You know, it's funny how that debate has been raging since cell phones themselves were actually invented. The rumors were already circulating. Have you ever heard of anything definitive on this, Robert? No, nothing definitive, no. I've yeah. heard all the scare, scare yeah, things. I just put it aside as just another uh, Luddite uh, technology scare. Well, I don't know, but, you know, I found an interesting article in the Metro News on May 16, 2013, and it, the headline read, Hello, how about a little talk therapy? And this is a local story, local research. Um, Are scientists wrong about the health risks of handheld devices, it asks. 
And um, the main device we, I'm reading from the article now, the main device we use to communicate with each other may or not, may not be harmful to our health after all. In some cases, the use of cell phones may even be akin to an apple a day, a doctor says, a London doctor. Alexandra Legros of the Lawson Health Research Institute says, quote, a very large piece of research is showing that all of those supposedly harmful electromagnetic fields radiating from handhelds can, in fact, be therapeutic. <laughs> can you imagine that? The fields, he says, can alter brain activity and physical responses, opening the possibility for therapy for people with neurological disorders and diseases. Cell phones have long been suspected to pose health risks, with the list of perceived damage including a heightened chance of developing a brain tumor. The World Health Organization website, citing the International Agency for Research on Cancer, notes the electromagnetic fields produced by handhelds are possibly carcinogenic to humans. Lawson started testing his ideas a couple of years ago, exposing volunteers to varying levels of electromagnetic fields pumped into their bodies from MRI machines and other equipment to see how they reacted. The investigation is being carried out on 17 volunteers, men and women between 18 and 55 years old. So far, none of his subjects has seen a decline in health. Instead, the exposure has created a bit of a spark in their brains, he says. He believes his research could be a basis for fu future scientific investigation, such as developing a less destructive way to treat Parkinson's disease. This is a very invasive surgery, he said, of current treatments. The question, he said, can we in the future make it less invasive? Isn't that a weird story? You know, that is extremely interesting because today I was just reading about how people are putting a cap on their head to administer low uh, electro uh, electric voltages through their scalp to particular parts of their brain to stimulate it. I haven't researched I, that's, it. Uh, that's a strange one. I haven't researched it any further than that. It's just a story uh, I saw. But, um, yeah, no, I, I'm not dismissing that a tumor can't grow with a particular level of radiation or electromagnetic radiation. I don't know. I'll just wait until it's scientifically uh, been vetted through the papers. You know, it's, it's a little reminiscent of a series of articles that the National Post Lawrence Solomon wrote about how they discovered that people exposed to moderate degrees of, uh, you know, light and moderate amounts of radiation mm -hmm. actually had fewer cancers and, cancers and related diseases. They say that a low dose yeah. of radiation, this is, I, I read this when, uh, when the Hiroshima, not Hiroshima, the um, Fukushima yeah. reactor uh, exploded that actually low dose radiation can actually prevent uh, cancers because it uh, triggers the immune system or something in the body. Amazing. Anyways, I just thought I'd bring that to our attention, a local story about something mm. that's been on a lot of people's minds, and I just, you know... I yeah, the Lawson Research Center's just down the road here. Yeah, and they have an as association with um, University of Western Ontario here. Yes. Now, um, of course, now we have a bigger issue, and this is the issue of, I guess, London Hydro. And, uh, you know, we've always known that we're going to be in for a shock <laughs> sometime with this whole system of electricity we've got. But interesting to see some of the letters to the editor that appeared in the free press recently, or, and other papers, that reflect to me some of the anger about the situation, but as well as some interesting misunderstandings that is misdirecting a lot of the effort and talk that's going on here. For example, I have a letter to the editor by D.J. Livingston, London Free Press, June 10th, who writes, The city really doesn't own anything. It exists at taxpayer expense. The business of selling London Hydro was, was voted on previously, and now council is repeating the same thing. 
As usual, greed is getting in the way of common sense, which is sadly lacking with the city's politicians. To sell an asset that brings in $7 million a year to someone who's willing to pay more than London Hydro's worth, well, the buyer obviously sees potential earnings where our councillors lack the foresight to recognize it. Enough already. Leave London Hydro as is and move on with running the city instead of trying to sweeten the trough so they can continue to spend like drunken sailors. Now, any comments on reaction to that? Well, I'm up to two minds. First of all, I don't think that the, uh, the city or any government body should be in the utility business. None of their business. It should be private, all of it, but it should also be competitive. And unfortunately, we have a system where there is, it would be mon- monopolistic, even if they sold it. So, again, two minds on that. Yeah. You know, I found myself agreeing with his sentiment. But, um, you know, his warning of what our politicians might do with a lump sum of money, you know. Um, I disagree with his first statement. What? Um, that the government doesn't own anything. Well, they do. Remember, taxpayers don't own anything. Our money's been taken. You're right. You're right. And so if a thief comes to you uh, in the middle of the night, you, you said this to me, Bob, if a thief, thief comes and steals your money, what do you care what he spends it on? Right. The fact that he stole it is what you, the issue is. No, th- 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 <laughs> you know, it's just not true. Um, it's true that the city owned, or, or, or um, London Hydro exists on its customer base, many of whom are not taxpayers, okay? And property owners pay municipal taxes to the city, not to London Hydro. And like property owners, London Hydro also pays money to the city, both as a taxpayer and as a dividend payer, all right? Because uh, London Hydro, or um, City of London is the sole shareholder of London Hydro. And he, and he speaks also about selling London Hydro, how it's been voted on previously, and they're repeating it. Well, what they're repeating is that the sale is inevitable. So get over it. <laughs> you know, if you heard what uh, Joe Fontana said in the council, he says, look, it's coming. And he says, uh, you know, what they voted on, what they actually voted on before was to discuss it later. And that's the problem with politics. The door is never closed on anything. So even when they do vote for something, don't assume that's the final vote on something. It's like something. the Performing Arts Centre. That'll happen, unfortunately. And also, when, when Londoners talk about the great $7 million that London Hydro gives to the city each year, it seems to me that they're forgetting where that $7 million came from. <laughs> came from the citizens of London. And it's it's just amazing, you know. And then, and then blaming the city to, to, you know, they might spend like drunken sailors while being an insult to drunken sailors who spend their own money. <laughs> you know, I do agree that y- you could leave London Hydro as it is. I really don't care because I don't think it's going to be in a, a big difference. And, um, but anyways, I want to reconcile the two sides of this. Another letter here in the, in, uh, this was in the Free Press, June 6th, and this one's by Jim Lush, who we hear about, uh, who talks a lot on a lot of the talk shows and stuff, says, I was jolted by the article regarding the sale of London Hydro. City Hall owns all the shares. I disagree. The taxpaying citizens of London own all the shares, and it's up to us to make that decision. This dysfunctional council doesn't have the ability to make this kind of judgment, as it's totally short-circuited and couldn't run a light bulb festival. Well, I don't know. I think most people are impressed with the city's annual light bulb, bulb festival that they have in Victoria Park every Christmas season. <laughs> Although I know they're not making any money at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, disagree all you want, Jim, but City Hall does own all the shares, of which there are exactly 1,001. And I figured out at a market value, because they're saying London Hydro is worth 300 million bucks, that would mean that each share is valued at about 300,000 which means that 10 shares would cost you about 3 million, 5 shares for a cool 1.5 million. You just 
you know, get your money out. And, and now, if, if, for example, each of London's, say, 350,000 or so residents actually had a single, quote, share of London Hydro, and those shares were broken down into 350,000 shares, that would work out to about $857 per imaginary share, right? Uh, how, how much power would 857 bucks buy you on London Hydro? These My days? last electric bill was about $260. So That includes water. So f- three, four months worth anyway, Yeah, right? three, four months worth. And, um, of course, based on the $7 million annual payment to the city, your imaginary share, one of 350000 would earn you $20, or 2.3%, based on my rough thing. But I understand that's not the actual well, rate of return. I have a question, Bob. What's mm-hmm. a government monopoly doing making a profit? Well, that's one of the questions I'll be getting into in the next part of the show, because okay. that's a huge question, isn't it? And uh, another issue, and I think this was in The Londoner by D. Sawchuck, June 6th, many issues more pressing than grocery carts, re- reads the headline. And, of course, one of those issues is, as he says, as, lo- as, as far as London Hydro, have you noticed a large increase in your hydro and water bill? Oh, this yes. Is, this is all thanks to our wonderful mayor and city councils. councilors. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's windmills. It, they voted for these changes. There must be thousands of city taxpayers facing this problem, paying for food or utilities. That's true. I grew up conserving hydro and water and continue to apply the same practice in my adult years. My utility charges have doubled. I called London Hydro and talked to two different employees, the second being a manager. They both told me to use more water to keep my infrastructure costs down. Does this make sense in how to conserve our natural resources? Wasting water I don't want or need to, u- uh, uh, need to use to save a couple of dollars. What will happen in the summer when the powers that be say conserve water, don't water lawns, gardens, etc.? Are the infrastructure charges going to increase again? Why are my bills approximately the same as a four-person home? I've compared my bill with friends. Wake up, London. If you lie down and play dead, this BS will continue and probably get worse. Don't you think all these disturbing problems are far more important than grocery carts? He ends. And I would say yes, but it doesn't mean that grocery carts on our street aren't a legitimate problem to talk about and deal with, right? People are always throwing their issue on on top of somebody Mm -hmm. else's. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's asking, does it make sense on how to conserve our natural resources? Well, the idea of conservation itself is flawed at the core. And when applied to nature, it's ridiculous. There's no shortage of water, folks. (laughs) It falls from the skies, people. (laughs) It's one of the most plentiful things in the universe. What what there's a shortage of is people willing to bring it from where it pools to where you are. That's That's all. That's all water service is, right? It's in in ancient times they did it with pots and and, and bowls and things. They went down the river and 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 that was the water service of the time. But just don't forget the treatment. That's another aspect of it. Yeah, of course. But when people say they're conserving, what they really mean is that they're being economical for yes, themselves, yes. right? Mm-hmm. By not wasting the economic resources that they themselves do not have. It's economic resources you're talking about, not water. They're conserving their financial resources. Now, if a person allows himself to be misguided by the conservation of the environment um, in, in making economic decisions, well, then you're going to be out your money all the time because the odds are you'll be doing both yourself and the environment a great disservice because that's just not the way things are. And the other thing is when, they, when they're telling you at City Hall to use more water and your cost goes down, that's, you're not really saving a couple of dollars. You're actually going to be spending more by using more water. What they're telling you, though, though is that your cost relative to the fixed charges which you cannot escape, even if your usage is nil, will go down. 
However, by not using water, your fixed charges do not change. So you're, in effect, paying more per liter of water the less you use, and, the, and less for a liter of water the more you use. And then he asks, why are my bills approximately the same as a four-person home? Well, because of the fixed charges that come with each meter and with each account. Usage is not what you're paying for. You're paying for access to possible usage, right? Assuming the power doesn't go out, which is another issue. Correct, and I, d I don't disagree with that, Yeah, that flat charge. Well, it's one way of financing it, but not the way they've been bringing it in and foisting on us. And that's completely, mm. I think, uh, misrepresentative from the top. And they're just... They're just lying to us. It's just terrible. You know, with all the rules and price changes for electricity consumption, you know, at various times of day now, I'm reminded of a more primitive style of life, one that is very much reflected in our following scene coming up here from the 1960s comedy series, Green Acres. Remember that? I do. Oliver and Lisa Douglas, played by Eddie Albert and Eva Gabor. And they moved from their posh lifestyle in Manhattan out to Hooterville, I think. was, was yes. where, In the middle of nowhere so that Oliver could live his dream fantasy of being a farmer and living off the land. So remember our lesson in electricity rationing today is, and it's this, you can't plug in a two with a six. And now for the wheat prices. At the Chicago Exchange, wheat opened steady and... <laughs> What's the price of wheat? <laughs> Darling, I think the foo's blue. The foo's? Yes, like when we were in New York and the lights went out and you telephoned down to the superintendent and he came up and he put in a new fuse. Fuse. And it was the generator that you blew out. We don't have fuse, uh, fuse. And just as I was learning the wheat prices, you know, I've decided to plant wheat. I'm sorry, darling, but something happened when I plugged in the coffee pot. Why? The coffee pot's only a number two. What else you got plugged in? Oh, well, no wonder the generator blew out. You've got eight plugged in. No, only four. <laughs> the number of plugs doesn't make the difference. It's the number on the plugs. That makes the difference. Oh. I thought I explained that to you. You did. Oh, I thought you understood it. I didn't. <laughs> well, all right, I'll explain it again. The whole thing is based on the principle of seven. That's the maximum load the generator can carry. Now, the bigger electrical appliances, they have the biggest numbers, as I've indicated on the chart here. Uh, the can opener is one. Coffee pot, electric iron, toaster, mixer, that's two. Frying pan, three. Rotisserie, four. Dishwasher, five. Washing machine, freezer, and refrigerator. Uh, they draw the most electricity, you see, so there's six. You understand? <laughs> You don't understand. <laughs> All right. That's the washing machine. That's six. Hmm? Yeah. Now, with a six, you can only have a one, because that adds up to seven. Hmm? Now, that can only be the can opener. You see? Unless you don't use the washing machine, and then you could use, oh, say, the electric iron. Well, what's that for? <laughs> iron clothes. Well, which one is that? <laughs> Haven't you ever used this? Oh, yes, to, to hold the door open. <laughs> uh, 
The main thing to remember is that the total cannot be more than seven. Now you understand. You don't understand. Yes, I do understand. I am going to make coffee, so I, I pull out the three and I push in the two. Good girl. You love me. Of course I love you. But not enough to let me plug in the three. It's always about love, isn't it? <laughs> in this case, it's about rationing. Yeah, that's for sure. That's what we come to these days is rationing. It's, it's, it's almost like that, isn't it? And, uh, well, so we've got this London Hydro sale pending, at least all the talk about it. And, and, and the, the, the propaganda around this issue is a little going on unabated here. You know, I heard uh, Vinay Sharma talking about how the financial health of the company that we own is important. And I just hate it when somebody tells me I own a public utility that I know I have not a share of. Mm-hmm. Not five minutes later, in the same interview, he says, you and I would like to buy a share of London Hydro as a good investment. I'm going, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just tell us we owned it? Yeah. <laughs> right? And he's saying these things, like, two minutes apart from each other as though they, as though they had nothing to do with each other, right? And then, of course, uh, earlier this week, I heard uh, Vinay Sharma on another radio station where both he and the host were talking about how Londoners just love London Hydro, okay? And London Hydro's raking in millions of dollars in profits. And it appears inevitable from the current public conversations uh, that the corporation will be sold in whole or part at some point in the not-too-distant future. But this sale is not even relevant to the big picture of how power in this province is produced and distributed, and the small picture about how the big picture has affected the average individual in this province. You know, I agree with Vinay Sharma on one thing, that the customer and the consumer will be unaffected. Of course, Vinay Sharma is the... uh, He's he's the head of uh, London London Hydro right now. And, of course, let's be clear, Corporation of the City of London is the sole owner. And, but the, the, the reason it won't make a difference is because the c- customer is going to be continued to be gorged for every cent under either ownership of London Hydro. So quit thinking that you're going to own the darn thing and that you even have a share in it. If you did, you'd be selling it in two seconds flat. And the longer they take to sell it, the less it's going to be worth when it comes time to sell it until they'll be running it at a loss. You watch. Now, you know, I happen to know from, from personal experience and from other people that there are seniors in this city who sit in the dark and don't run their water or have a shower in a timely fashion because they're afraid of the cost yep. that they're going to see on their bill. Air conditioning, just forget about it. You know, and, 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 and these people, they're paying the highest price for electricity, the ones who don't use it. We've, we're suffering from the jobs lost and those that will never come to both Ontario and the London region, region here thanks to the highest electricity cost practically in North America. And the real increases are still ahead of us. You know, they're still coming. Manufacturing has no interest in coming to this area because they use a lot of power. And if, if, the, if it's not provided for them cheaper, they're not going to be in Ontario. We've seen the destruction of the countryside with windmills that are economically unsustainable everywhere they're using them. They can't produce the power necessary, and they're extremely pollution-oriented, which people do not understand yet how bad they are. We've we've done all this on the show years ago. And meanwhile, we pay other jurisdictions to buy our oversupplied cheap power while we pay top dollar for bottom service. And, and, And everybody's proud of London Hydro? 
I, this is I, not I, London I, Hydro, though. Well, well but, but, it, but they're all part of the system. That's true. A- and, and no one is telling us the problem as it is. Yeah, if you want to buy in on London Hydro and rake, rake money in from your neighbor who's suffering like this, how do you judge the success of a business? Me, I would judge a success where my electricity charges generally went down in price over time, which is a normal pattern of prices with consumers that aren't run by the government, you know. I would judge the success of London Hydro by knowing I can count on my power supply being uninterrupted for extended periods of time. You know, um, do you remember when you could go to Florida for three or four weeks and leave your VCR set and count on your programs being recorded when you got back? I wouldn't even dare dare try such a thing. Actually, nowadays. I live in a newer part of the city where everything yeah. is under the ground, so yeah. I don't have the you know outages. That, but I know where, where you live. Yeah. You're complaining about the outages down in your end of town all the time. Oh yeah, and and I but I never moved before. I was in the same area, and we go for years without an outage. Now yeah. I'm lucky if I go two weeks. I don't even reset my my microwave anymore. And then I see London Hydro, remember we talked about this last time, they're developing their new outage management system (laughs) that will allow, quote, us, this is them talking, that will allow us to provide you with important information in the event of a power outage, such as when you can expect it back on. Well, up till now, we've been calling them. They want to call us. What is that all about, you know? And then, of course, there's the issue you brought up, Robert. Uh, A government agency making a profit wasn't the whole reason that government sold us corporate entities owned by government so that they would be non-profit, so that we could, quote, save money, which even that's nonsense. Even if they don't make a profit, they're still going to cost you more than they would with a profit company. So, I mean, I mean, still, the whole thing, where are all the left-wingers to complain about this horrible profit situation? How come they suddenly don't come out? Because left-wingers don't care about profit if it's the government making the profit. Right? Yeah, because they know that that $7 million is going to go into their pockets through their pet programs. Right. Exactly. But now here's the real story behind the story, and I've skipped a lot. Vinay Sharma in his interview with Steve Garrison earlier, these week, earlier this week, and these are my own words. He expressed great concern that the profits earned by London Hydro should not be seen as a cash cow for city coffers. And here's the reason. That profit is needed for future infrastructure maintenance and upgrades for London Hydro. Mm-hmm. If you want to keep the power going, the, okay. city, the city's peeing it all away on other projects. If the city spends London Hydro's profits on other municipal purposes, then London Hydro will either have to raise its rates or come back to the taxpayer for capital spending to keep its infrastructure in working order. I don't see. I don't no. call that a profit. No, it's not a profit at all. Not in that sense. Because it's, it's set aside for future uh, and capital And you can't call anything a profit that's being taken from people in the sense of force, where you don't have a competitive market and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, right? And so, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people who believe that, gov- that London Hydro and government regulation of electric rates are things that protect them from even higher prices, were they, d- were, were they to be privatized, right, or taken out of political control. And this kind of reminds me of what y- Yaron Brook joked about, where, you know, people believe that elevator manufacturers want to kill their customers, right, because <laughs> they require those inspections and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got to stop believing in political and economic mythology if we want to stop the consequences of those beliefs from having a very real and tangible effect on our personal economies. And the biggest myth is that, quote, we own public institutions in any way, shape, or form. That's totally fantasy land out there when it comes to uh, the environment in which these issues are discussed and debated. How can one possibly have a rational discussion about any city or economic matter concerning the city when everybody's on this page? They're, they're all nuts. It's, they don't even know who owns what, right? Now, that's a hard nut to crack. Meanwhile, 
Remember to do your laundry at 2 a.m. and flush your toilet on odd-numbered days only. <laughs> I can see that coming. And remember that Just Right will continue again next week at 11 a.m. on 94.9 FM. Boy, our days are numbered, aren't they? <laughs> so see you next week when we'll return on, on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be all right. <laughs> What's this candle doing in the refrigerator? Well, darling, I had to plug in the dishwasher, which is the five, so I had to unplug the refrigerator, which is the six. So when I opened the door, the light didn't go on and I couldn't see, so I put in the candle. <laughs> Good thinking. Oh, good, the number five stuff. Now I can plug in the number six. <laughs> you see, I'm learning. Yes, you are learning. And I'm proud of you. I'm very proud of you. And why did you put an electric toaster in the dishwasher? Well, it was full of crumbs. 